There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Hello, friends, and welcome back to this edition of Nuance. I'm Case Thorpe, and glad to have you with us. Just remind you, please like and subscribe. It really helps us to get word out there. Well, today, our special guest is Michael Graham. Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you, Case. It's good to be here. I want to explain to everybody listening, it's a bit of a new day for the collaborative as we have expanded our focus to uh, the public square. Uh, certainly, faith and work, a key component in that. But thinking about how do we prep and equip professionals, Christian professionals, for uh, their life, work, and ministry in the public square. And so we've even nuanced nuance <laughs> this podcast. So there are biweekly guests on a variety of topics that apply. And we're throwing in an extra weekly spiritual formation episode, just 10 minutes long, called Formed for Faithfulness. And it's a bit of a devotion and reflection on the public square, and it tracks with the Christian liturgical year. So please be sure and check that out. Well, Michael is a friend and a colleague here in Orlando. I've loved getting to know him over the years. I first got to know him when he was a pastor at Orlando Grace Church. And now he is the program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics at the Gospel Coalition. He is a graduate of University of Florida. Go Gators. You know, Michael, my uh, son is awaiting his admissions letter any day now to UF. <clears throat> so we are on the edge of our seats. The Lord knows. Uh, he has a degree from Reformed Theological Seminary, husband of one, father of two. And today he is going to share with us about his new highly acclaimed book, uh, the Great Dechurching. The Great Dechurching. Uh, it's got a lot of great coverage. Perhaps you've heard a bit about it. Um, we will have a link to order this in our show notes. And I just want to encourage you, uh, whether you're in pastoral ministry or not, this book has a lot to say about our culture right now. Uh, the research is intense. And it's co-written with Jim Davis, a son of First Presbyterian Church of Orlando, I'll have the world know. We want to claim him as one of our own. Um, but Michael and I uh, were together at Tim Keller's funeral in New York, and it was such a special, special time. So, uh, Mike, let me uh, hand it over to you. And um, I just appreciate your work here. So tell us a little bit about you. And if you could then uh, drift into how this book came to be. Yeah, Case, thank you. Um, yeah, so this book came to be because uh, Jim and I were working on the same pastoral staff at Orlando Grace Church um, here in Orlando, Florida. And we'd come across some data that said that nearly half of our city had dechurched and that we, were, we had the same percentage of evangelicals as Seattle or New York City. That and blows so, my mind. Yeah, blows so we yeah, we were kind of scratching our head because, you know, Orlando feels a lot different um, culturally and even religiously than either of those two cities. So we felt like, okay, we need to know more about what's going on here. And it, it kind of dawned on us, you know, after a little while, just kind of thinking about it and whiteboarding it, that 
Oh, well, Seattle and New York City are more unchurched cities, but Orlando is more of a de-churched city. Mm. And so, you know, people here have more context for, you know, having grown up uh, in many ways in the church, but not being in the church um, here today. And so, you know, we, we tried to figure out, okay, well, you know, we wanted to get our hands on, you know, any and all data that we could. And there wasn't much there, particularly um, information that was either granular or recent. And because we needed actionable information, if, you know, hey, if half of your city has this, you know, belongs to this particular demographic, and we don't know much about this particular, particular demographic, well, we felt like <laughs> we can't do our responsibility as pastors here in the city of Orlando. And, you know, if we don't have information about, well, who are these people and why did they go? And like, can we do anything about it? But at this point, you had not done your own research. You were uh, motivated by another study. Yeah. So, yeah, we had we looked at some stuff from Barna and then I had talked with Justin Holcomb and him and Glenn Lucky had done uh, some research back in 2014. We love but, Bishop Holcomb. Yes. But the, but the, it's like, you know, data is all about recency and it's all about granularity in order to be able to have information that's, you know, pastorally and philosophy of ministry wise mm. being actionable. Mm. And so like that level of granularity nor the recency, neither of those things were there. So um, we needed to go and commission something that was new. And we wanted to do it right as COVID was, you know, at, you know, kind of after COVID was over for mm. not just red states, but blue states. So, so then you reach out to Ryan Burge now to do the research. He is a sociologist. Why Ryan? And I imagine it was a pretty uh, expensive effort. How'd you pay for it? Yeah, so we raised the funds. Um, I had some good friends um, in uh, in a church in Missouri who were very helpful for us. That you know we wouldn't have been able to do this were it not for their assistance and in um, fundraising. And then uh, Ryan, if you know Ryan at all, he's he's the best religion data person in the country, um, and he has a unique vantage point because you know he's an ordained minister. Um, in in the ABC USA, the American Baptist Church, um, mm. which is which is a mainline Baptist denomination, and so he actually he act he actively pastors on a week in week out basis, and then but his primary work is his work as a social scientist at Eastern Illinois University. In addition to that, he's a very prodigious um, publisher of religious data. Um, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. You know, you you. If you're listening to this, you need to subscribe to his newsletter, which is um, can be found at graphs graphsaboutreligion.com. Okay. Um, so Ryan produces, you know, he produces two articles a week, one on Monday, one on Thursday, and they're always must reads. Um, so Ryan, um, we wanted to work with somebody as a data partner who would have the ability. Um, where we could publish not just in evangelical circles, but we, want, we wanted to be able to publish much more broadly than that. We, we needed to be able to publish in a way that it, it could be cited by academics, where it could be cited by um, you know any of the journalistic outlets on those things. We, we learned that some of the journalistic outlets won't publish data from a number of data sources that mm. you know that evangelicals will publish from. 
um, because of research methods and a lack of a um, university review review board process. And so, okay. yeah, so that's now, did why you go. Did you go find Ryan because of his reputation or you already had a you knew him? I didn't know Ryan personally before this process. I knew his I knew his reputation had been following it for some time. Um, so, yeah, so we re, so we reached out to him with the project and you know, he basically said, yeah, if you can, you know, if you can raise the funds, let's do it together. And, okay. Uh, okay. and then he looped in another a really another really excellent um, uh, political scientist, Paul Jupe. Um, who helped us with the survey design because we wanted our study to be able to be um, parallel and collinear and be and to be able to speak um, to to be able to speak you know uh, intertextually with mm, other mm. studies that have existed and it's a way to also you know sometimes you'll ask questions that are identical that are in other right. studies so that right. you can make sure the integrity of your data set is sound um, so that you can compare the outcomes from you know from your study with another study and make sure okay. that they're in the ballpark of each other so speaking of outcomes give us sort of the snapshot of the big findings yeah, so I don't want to bury the lead. Um, the most important thing that we learned was that we're in the the largest and fastest religious shift in American history. Wow! So that was we had a hunch that that was the case. Um, so the this is you know we're talking forty million adult Americans who have left houses of worship, and so dechurched in our definition is somebody who used to go to church on a monthly or greater basis, and now go to church or a house of worship less than once per year. So essentially not at all. So that means if, you know, we didn't count you as de-churched if you just went on Christmas last year or just Easter, uh, you know, last year, there's, there's several million other people that, you know, are just Christmas and Easter only people. Creasters. We call them creasters. We love our creasters, but we'd love to see you more often. We call them C- CEOs, uh, Christmas and Easter only. <laughs> <laughs> I like um, it. But yeah, no. Uh, so the the previous fastest shift before was the 25 years after the Civil War, basically from 1870 um, up through 1895. Um, and then the the number of people who have left is larger than the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and all of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. So now, is that adjusted for population? Yeah, adjusted for population. It's the fastest wow. shift. Yeah. Wow. Okay, let's let's dwell on that for a bit because that really moved me. So even though what we're probably three hundred million right now in America, yeah, it's about three hundred and fifty million adults. Okay, three fifty. Even though in those days they were radically le- less, the percentage boost from the first Great Awakening. So what mid seventeen hundreds, the percentage boost, and by boost I mean people finding faith and going to their uh, local church, and the second Great Awakening, which is early eighteen hundreds. And then you say there was this huge boost after the Civil War. Yes. And then the Billy Graham Crusades of the 20th century. So we have lost percentage-wise more here recently than those gains in those eras. Yes. Wow. Wow. That's just a, a lot to, to process and think in, to, to take in. Um, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Finish your um, big finding. Yeah. So, yeah. So that shift is 25% faster than any of those other periods that you mentioned. Um, so obviously those things are, you know, that's, that's disconcerting. It's troubling. Um, however, we, 
we we were kind of surprised at the you know at the highest altitude. I think there were two storylines that people had to kind of explain the shift because I think people have felt that shift. And if your media diet leaned maybe a little bit to the left, then the story that was there was well, lots of people have left houses of worship because of racism, misogyny, um, political syncretism, clergy scandal, or clergy abuse. And then if your media diet leaned a little bit to the right, then the storyline there had been, well, people have left houses of worship because of secular progressivism or because of, say, the sexual revolution. And can you find a few million people who fit either of those storylines? Yes. Yes, you can. Um, so neither of those storylines are false storylines. Okay. But what we learned was that the, the largest thing was actually a much more boring story than the you know the story coming out of you know either of those you know the the, the left leaning or or the right leaning story, and that was most people left houses of worship for really boring things. So, for example, the top three reasons why people dechurched was number one, I moved; number two, attendance was inconvenient; or number three, some kind of family change, divorce, remarriage, uh, the birth of a child, those different kinds of things. And after that, you start to see some things that are, you know, maybe more fit some of those other storylines. But really, just it's just been the habits and rhythms of American culture, society, and these kinds of things, really pedestrian things that seem, uh, I mean, maybe the best word to put around it is pragmatic. Mm. And so the good news with that uh, is... If is, I may, if yeah, I may, I want to sit on that just because as an evangelical and uh, our particular church moved from a more mainline progressive denomination to a more conservative evangelical one, which a lot of other churches are in the process of doing or have done. And, you know, our convictions were it was the more progressive agendas in the denominational hierarchy that uh, led to the precipitous decline in church participation. And yet you're saying, actually, no. Is that what I hear you saying? It, what I'm saying is that it's complicated. Um, <laughs> you know, the the mainline decline, it, it, it is complex. You, you've seen decline among the mainline, more, more decline among progressive mainline than some of the more conservative, you know, parts of the mainline. Um, however, there's been pretty precipitous decline for both of those things. Um, there's complexity to that. Some of that has to do with just the, you know, where, where mainline churches are. Um, and, it, you know, you have a lot of decline both in the Midwest and in the Northeast from a dechurching standpoint. And so, you know, that's some of that's in the mix. The, the movement in, you know, Christianity, particularly um, among evangelicals, is, is away from denominations and towards non-denominational. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and or networks instead of denominations. So there's some complexity to some of those things. Um, okay. So we're not saying those progressive uh, theologies and practices were not a factor, but the top three factors were more pragmatic in nature. Yes. Yeah. But those things are definitely, I mean, it's not that the, you know, those two stories were false stories. You can find plenty of evidence of both of those stories there in the data. It's just, you know, in the book, we talk about um, how there's at, at the highest altitude, there's two different kinds of dechurching. There are people who left casually, 
and that's, you know, these pragmatic people, you know, or it's mm. just kind of habits and rhythms. And it kind of seems like they left church um, unintentionally. Mm-hmm. And that's about 30 of the 40 million people. Mm. And then about 10 million people definitely left church highly in- intentionally. And we called those people de-church casualties. So uh-huh. casually de-churched, de-churched casualties. And the casualties, they left intentionally because there was some kind of, you know, at least one or more many problems that they were experiencing in right. church. And so some of those things happened at the individual level and other of those things happened at the institutional level. And for some people, it was happening um, both on the individual and institutional levels. Okay, so that is interesting. The de-churched casually is that right casually mm-hmm. casually dechurched and dechurched casualties uh the casually dechurched it was kind of unintentional they didn't just get up and storm out for something uh and yet neither though does it say to me that their discipleship was deep enough that their faith sincerity drove them to reconnect or stay connected and that's where later I want to get in the conversation, like, to what degree do we as pastors are uh, complicit in this or as church leaders that our discipleship was kind of shallow and needs to be deeper? Yeah, th- that's the embarrassing thing. You know, uh, you know I, I've been clergy most of my adult life. So, you know, it, it wasn't initially I was like, oh, well, all these people, you know, left casually. Well, that's kind of good news. but. And most of the people who left, particularly among the casualty church, most of them are willing to return right now. So that's good news. Um, a lot of good news in the middle of the bad news. However, yeah, it's definitely embarrassing when, yeah, when you when you kind of drill down and you're like, oof, man, this faith is really shallow. You know, of the 15, 15 million of the 40 million people who left, left out of evangelical contexts. And when you look at the um, kind of the orthodoxy scores um, in the book and orthodoxy score for us is basically just like Nicene Creed level Christianity. So things like Trinity, humanity of Jesus, divinity of Jesus, sinlessness of Jesus, the atonement um, and the resurrection of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus and the reliability of the Bible. Those seven things were looked really bad among about 10 of the 15 million people who left evangelical wow. churches, wow. it looks like about 5 million of them have at least an accurate understanding of the gospel, but the other 10 um, are in a pretty, are, are in a pretty rough shape of the 15 million people who left. We, we, de- we de- um, devote a chapter um, for, we developed four profiles from the data in mm-hmm. the first of those profiles we called cultural Christians. This is 8 million of the 15 million people who left evangelical yep. churches. And only 1% of cultural Christians said that Jesus is the son of God. Wow. And so, yeah, it's kind of difficult to call those people like, you know, you know, regenerate in the faith, like walking, you know, walking with Jesus when, you know, have such a low view of him, him and his personhood. Well, and as I've read the book and heard even more of the interviews you and um, Jim have done, it's dawned on me, you needed from a sociological research basis to get more to general practice rather than, I don't sense that your data gets too much into the specifics of poor discipleship, those sorts of things. Would you concur? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we're, we flew the plane pretty high in terms of 
you know, overarching insights. There's definitely some insights there into the kinds of the kinds of weaknesses of spiritual formation, and uh, particularly also just the ways uh, institutional churches relate to um, their contexts and relate to the people in their city. Um, there's some things there. We built another resource um, on this website, dechurching.com. Um, ah. We built a 20 point audit for churches. Um, so that's, oh, that's there. Great. That's for free. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're clergy or you're a church leader, there's a 20 point audit of, you know, basically 20 areas that definitely impact dechurching. And audit of uh, you as an individual or your church? No, audit, audit for the, the institutional church. So, you know, it's basically, hey, how is our church doing on these 20 areas that all impact dechurching? For example, one of one of those things would be like, oh, do we have a process for when people move out of our city? Do we help them find a good church in a new city? Or do we have a process for when people are moving into our city to help them get connected to to our local church? So in, you know, 19 other things, you know, kind of like that that definitely impact dechurching all with an empirical basis. So that audit is there for free on dechurching.com. There's also some worksheets that you can pay for if you're like, oh, well, how do we get better on, you know, we, you know, we decided we failed on five of these 20. So how do we do better? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a pay resource there, but the, the, the most of value there is there is in that audit. Okay. So as a pastor, I uh, get a little uh, picky when people talk about, oh, I'm going to church. I'm like, no, you really mean you're going to worship because, you know, is the, the church is the building, the church is the living fellowship of the people, but y'all use the word church. And um, when you say going to church, I believe you're assuming by that Sunday morning worship or a worship service, whatever time. It's not a calculating for uh, Bible study, small group, maybe a service project, or if your kid plays on the church baseball team. Right. Yeah, we have mainly in mind, mainly in mind just kind of corporate worship. Um, but when we were studying this, um, we studied all religious traditions because you have to in order to be able to publish you know, academically for these things. It's just that, uh. you know, well over 90% of people who attend or used to attend are it's all you know out of one of the christian traditions okay okay well if i can thank you for this overview and i uh, listeners i had asked michael uh, i wanted to kind of uh, go in a little bit different direction than his and jim's interviews have been in other uh, formats and my goodness i mean michael y'all have gotten such great hits like you, you've uh, the church, the book's been mentioned in the new york times the Ben Shapiro show, right? What are, I want you to brag a little bit. Tell us some other places your book has been featured. Oh, geez. Um, okay. Yeah. Those places, uh, the Atlantic, the mm. Washington post, NPR, uh, C-SPAN, um, national review. That's right. C-SPAN came and did a whole episode with y'all. Yeah. Dispatch. Um, uh, Christianity Today, TGC, mm. and uh, now Nuance, right? Like put us up. Yes, in Nuance That's and Mere right. Orthodoxy. Shout out to Jake. Ah, there you go. Shout out <laughs> to Jake. All right. So in the last, uh, I guess fifth or maybe chapters of your book, you shift to lessons for the church, and I really appreciate that you didn't just give us data and tell us there's a problem. 
but it's an attempt to course correct the present church. And it's not just programmatic quick fixes. And why did you approach it that way? I know I think that's very important because pastors have the tendency to look for the next golden bullet. Uh, but rather that you resisted giving them that, why is that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, pastoring um, in any time, but especially in our own cultural moment, it's just, it has a lot of complexity to it. So I'd rather speak principially than, you know, because I, I don't think there are, there's there's not silver bullets for these things. I mean, on the one I level. I said golden bullet. You're right. Silver yeah, bullet. Because look, we can make a difference in terms of how we relate to people personally. Okay. As individuals. Mm -hmm. And we can also make, make, we can grow as in building healthier institutions. And so we need to do both of those things kind of at the same time. And so we wanted to talk about, okay, what can we do as individuals to relate better um, as we're interacting with, you know, the people that God is regularly putting in our lives. And then we need to, we need to grow in our ability of what does it look like for our local church to be engaging with our community as well. Mm. So how do mm. we do both of those things at the same time? Well, you know, on the, on the individual front, there's a lot of work that, that looks like it needs to be there on the way that we relate interpersonally. So we unpack in chapter nine, we talk about um, six keys to relational wisdom. So, in that chapter, we, we talk about um, God awareness, self-awareness, others' awareness, awareness of how, of how other people are experiencing you, and then cultural awareness and emotional awareness. And, when and we you're have, not just talking about pastors with these things. You're talking about all Christians, uh, you would suggest, move in this relational wisdom yes, direction. Yes, all of us. Yeah, because, you know— so many of the things of when we were looking, particularly at the dechurched casualties, so many of these things boil down to just the way that either people related to them or the way that the church related to them. And so, well, that's good news because if, if people are experiencing pain because of how we related to them or how the church related to them, well, those are things that are in my control. I can't yeah. control secular progressivism. I can't control the sexual revolution. I can't create, you know, institutional reforms across, you know, Roman Catholic mainline <laughs> evangelical churches. But right. what we can do is I can inspire other people to relate with increasing wisdom with the people who God's put in their life. And we can inspire local churches to, to promote a gospel that's true, good and beautiful all yeah. at the same time. So those right. are things that are within our control. And actually, I mean, that, that's, that's been like the greatest news about, you know, everything, you know, in the middle of all this bad news is there's a lot of things that are in our control that are low hanging fruit mm. that we can do better on. And actually the things that are most central and that are animating the most people's concerns really just have to do with things that are more in our control than those much larger um, yeah. things that are well outside of our control. Well, I hear you. It does sound like good news because it's not like your findings show that people are rejecting the Christian worldview, right? It's not that uh, 
people have uh, investigated the worldview options and found Christianity wanting. Rather, it's the nature of the church and its people today that they're walking away from. Would you concur? Yeah, it's more that, you know, obviously, you know, are you going to have people who, who have intellectual objections to the faith? Sure. But by and large, it looks like things that are just a lot more pragmatic than that. And it looks like things that, yeah, you know, if, if, we, if we as Christians tell a better story and tell a story that's faithful to the text, most importantly, um, namely that we have a gospel that, that is actually true. Jesus did you know, live a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death for his people and raised himself from the dead. But it's also, you know, the, the Jesus path is also good and beautiful. You know, we believe, and I think, you know, genuinely, rightly, and supported by, you know, not just, not just our sacred text, but supported by real life, that when we seek to, to walk the path of discipleship that Jesus has put before us, it's a path that leads to human flourishing. That doesn't mean, you know, human flourishing does, doesn't mean just like health and wealth, but what it, what it does mean is we become more whole people and we become healthier people in our whole person as we seek to put off ourselves and mm. put on Christ. And when we seek to also walk in, you know, the 59 one another's and we, we seek to walk um, with the fruit of the spirit and not in the flesh, you know, we become more healthy and whole people. It is a path that leads to human flourishing, even though there is sacrifice to those things and there is suffering in that, you know, that it is, this is a treasure in the field. There is a cost to discipleship, but mm. when we understand that what, what, what God has put before us is worth putting every other thing that might have, you know, the love of our heart and Preach. this, and, and this is the number one love. Well, when we rightly order that love with all of these other loves, yeah, it is a path that leads to, you know, to us being, mm. you know, being more whole human beings. So I think when when that's the story that not just we tell, but it's a story that we live individually, and it's a story that we live as as communities, as local churches, then I think that that's something that's really going to be compelling. Dude, and, I love it. I mean, you've you've shifted from uh, author researcher to to preacher. <laughs> Your pastor's heart is is clear, and it just. I mean, it, it makes me feel a little guilty, but like we in the church have just done a poor job of forming our people. How do I just can't help but carry or feel some of the blame and know that we've got to disciple differently. And that's a big passion of mine. I'm working on a book on uh, discipleship for the 21st century, and it's got to be different than it was for me in my suburban Atlanta mainline experience, I'm grateful, so grateful for those men and women that loved me. And my parents did the best they knew, but it worked for me, but most not for most of my peers. So I, I don't know how to, I just feel a lot of burden. I think one of the reasons why, you know, Case, both you and I are fond of, of Tim Keller and, you know, why we, you know, took the time to, um, uh, to to go and experience his memorial service in New York City was because Tim was good at bringing multiple different traditions together 
you know, he had this, you know, kind of confessional reformed strain, this um, missional strain and this pietistic strain that he kind of brought all together, you know, in one person. And that, uh, you know, the mixture and the cross-pollination of the best parts of each of those things. So the best parts of thinking, the best parts of feeling, and the best parts of doing, when you kind of put those things together, you end up with a, I think, a more coherent faith in one that, okay, all right, well, my individual Christian life does matter. You know, that pietistic, um, you know, uh, perspective. And then, okay, the life of the mind and, you know, having accurate thinking, you know, in general or special revelation. Well, that's important, you know, the confessional mm -hmm. reform stream. And then the missional innovation piece of, okay, what does it look like to appropriately contextualize, you know, the, the gospel to whatever, you know, whatever my community is. And when we put those three things together, I think we end up from an institutional standpoint, being able to put a compelling vision of the truth of the gospel, the goodness of the boss, the gospel and the beauty of the gospel all at the same time. So I think when, when when we're able to do that, I think that 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 will be um, when we do that in our churches, we will be able to help close the back door um, in ways that where it's probably been a bit more wide open um, over the last you know few decades. Mm. So true, so true. Now, uh, for our listeners, I hope that um, you get a sense of. Wherever you may be in your work life, in your neighborhood relations, uh, that um, there are a number of de-churched folks around you, and and engaging them with a sincere and a deep faith and a genuine authenticity is a good, helpful thing. Uh, so that I'm leading up to Michael share the surprising and uh, very low bar answer y'all found to one of the ways to help the casually de-churched re-engage? Yeah, so over half the people who <clears throat> left evangelical churches are willing to return today, and it's the overwhelming majority of those who are casually, casually de-churched. So in the book, we kind of outline that there's three different um, levels of engagement for some people. And so you know, for, for many people that there's the first category of just needing a nudge. So um, needing a nudge. Yeah. So the, the second profile in the book, um, the mainstream de-churched evangelicals, these people left very recently, really just around the time of COVID and a hundred percent of them are willing to return to an evangelical church. They look Orthodox. You're talking two and a half million people, you know, they like, Hey, as simple as like a water cooler moment or a text message that's something to the effect of like, Hey, I'm going to church this Sunday. Like, um, would you want to come with me and grab lunch after, or, Hey, I'm leading this thing, you know, at church, I'm speaking at this thing, or, you know, I'm, I'm doing this Bible study. I'm really excited about it. Like, would you be interested in coming with me? Almost all the people who are in, you know, that category, you know, that they just need that nudge in order to, to return. And they I want, want everybody to, to hear this. Like the nudge is enough. Uh, tell about the church in Missouri that practiced the nudge. 
Yeah. So um, the the same church that you know was helpful for us on fundraising, you know, we gave them a lot of access, early access to kind of the research findings, and they began incorporating some of that into just two things in their church: um, the preaching. They started talking about some of you know dechurching in their preaching, and then they developed some digital strategies um, to kind of identify some of the people that just kind of needed a little bit of a nudge, and they gave them a digital nudge. They saw um, a few hundred a people. Digital nudge. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. they saw a few hundred people. You know, de-church people come. You know, begin to come to church. Um, that that was above and beyond what they would have otherwise seen normally. Wow. So they had <laughs> just from uh, nudges, invitations, a remarkable response. Yeah, and it, and it just makes sense. I mean, it's like okay, you know, in our very digital age. Apart from weddings, funerals, and things that are of a sales nature, when is the, you know, and birthdays, um, when was the last time that somebody gave you a personal invitation to something? Right. Don't you, right. I mean, and how did it make you feel? I mean, doesn't it make you feel like loved and wanted and seen when you get to, you know, somebody says, hey, I want your presence. Like, I want more of of you. So I think, you know, one of the things that I want to, you know, that Jim and I want to inspire people to is that for most people, not all, but most, you know, doing, taking some relational risk and giving a nudge or having somebody, you know, to your dinner table and, you know, having some nature of, you know, spiritual or religious conversations or an invitation to church, these are not relationship ending conversations. And yet we feel like they could be. Because, you know, it's one thing to invite somebody to go see a theatrical show, but we get a little weird when it comes to, hey, come to my church, because I think the culture tells us people here, hey, come let me indoctrinate you. Yeah, and I think, you know, yeah, I think some of this, you know, particularly, you know, we're both in our 40s, and I think growing up with that era in America, you know, we were always told that religion and politics were taboo. But it's like you go online, and what do people want to talk about? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's my favorite well, topics. You know, I mean, you know, people are talking about those things, so it's actually yeah. not taboo. Yeah. And I think that there's there's really, you know, I'll give you a. I'm a collector of good questions, Ooh. and and I think questions are things that help unlock people's hearts, and they're they're things that unlock people's loves. Mm. And so when I think about as you're relating to people, I think about this acronym Ford, mm. family, occupation, relationships, and dreams, family, mm. occupation, relationships, and dreams. So this so, is pure Michael Graham. OG, yeah, this, right? this is just, this is just like what I've developed in my head. Okay. So when I'm, you know, when I move, you know, we moved this past year. Okay. So we're in a new neighborhood and these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. I want to know about people's family first. And I want, tell me about your work. You know, you're spending, you know, 40 plus hours a week, you know, on something like, you know, tell me what you do. Why do you like it? How did you get into that? You know, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, tell me the evolution of those things. Um, what's the, what's the best part? What's the hardest part? And then mm. you get into relationships and dreams. So I think once you're, once you're at least to the, like the R in terms of, you know, forming new relationships with people and, you know, this is just, I don't even think about these things consciously in my head. It's just you know, when I'm forming new relationships, this is just the natural progression of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
one of the things that I'll ask once I'm, you know, to the place of like, well, you know, like who, you know, what are some of the more important relationships? I'm interested in what are the important relationships to you individually, you know, friends, but I'm also important. I'm also interested in what relationships to institutions do you mm. have? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I'm talking about those things of like, when we're talking about, you know, key relationships, I'm talking about, well, I'm not just talking about relationships to individuals. I'm talking about relationships to institutions. Which is what's suffering and waning so much right now in America. It is. And so here's the, here's the question I want to give everybody who's listening to this. This is a question that I think is very unoffensive. And I think it's something that's very open-ended. And even in a highly secular context, this question has never gone sideways for me. You ready for it? Here's the magic question. Uh, I've, got, I've got my pen ready. Are you a person of faith? And that has never gone sideways for you. Never gone sideways for me. Because, you know, if somebody isn't a person of faith, well, a lot of times people will, will ask questions about, well, their lack of faith with derision or, mm. you know, with uh, some level of disrespect. Um, are you a person of faith uh, allows, you know, it's agnostic to any particular tradition. Mm. It also mm. allows for the people who are, who don't identify as anything, but maybe they're spiritual in nature, um, you know, spiritual, but not religious. It's open-ended enough to basically for anybody to, to share the evolution of their thoughts on big questions. And it's like, at the end of the day, that's what I want to know. Like, tell me the arc of your story on how you process life's biggest questions. So that sure. one question of, are you a person of faith will, will often yield for me all sorts of information about, okay, well, what's the best way that I can relate to you? And, you know, is there pain? Is there not, you know, is, are we, you know, is your relationship to these things, transactional, pragmatic, frustrating, painful, like those things, a lot of those things, you know, just kind of begin to surface in that. Um, there's another deeper question that's, you know, I, I don't always ask, but, you know, another, another place when, when people are going through something that's hard, um, uh, another question I'll ask people that sometimes helps bridge the gap into deeper things spiritually is, um, are you a person of prayer? You know, yeah, I was, that was going to be my thought. I've never had anybody turn me down for prayer. Yeah. So th those things, are, I think, are just easy ways to get a foot in the door into um, conversation that aren't offensive, that um, are encouraging and, you know, won't, won't get you in too much, you know, won't really get you in trouble. Now, would you distinguish that from, can I pray for you? Well, that's the follow-up question, right? Yeah, got it. You know, it. You know if, if somebody, you know, are, are you a person of prayer? Well, they might say, no, you know, no, but, um, well, hey, I, I am. And, you know, would you be willing to let me, you know, pray with you? Um, so mm -hmm. I think those are, you know, even if, even if the answer to the question is no, there's still, there's still that opportunity for a follow-up yeah. there. Well, and I've, I've never had anybody tell me no. And because it's so rare, even sadly, 
in the church amongst active Christians, uh, it leaves a very meaningful impression and helps folks draw close. Uh, In closing, I want to hit one more thing there. Uh, So for our listeners, remember these two questions. Use these in your family, neighborhood, and workplaces. Are you a person of faith? And are you a person of prayer? Those are great ways to then uh, help re-engage the de-church. I want to close on this point you make, Michael, about the institutional. And here at The Collaborative, we're big believers in institutions because they change culture in profound ways. They are multi-generational beyond ourselves. They bring up and inculcate in positive ways, hopefully, the next round of participants, whether they be workers, members, whatever the institution might be, and, and send them along in life's journey. And because of this anti-institutional sort of feel and reaction right now amongst Americans, and partly good reasons, because <laughs> a lot of institutions have failed in big ways. Um, how would you, uh, how would you guide someone in uh, their desire for people to know Christ as as they manage the the personal and the institutional, meaning I want uh, my neighbor to know Jesus and I want him or her to be in a church, to be active. Whether it's my church or not, I know the good that greater community can do for them in their walk. Any words, uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, just just like in anything, we, when we exercise relational wisdom, people boil down to really kind of two things, wants and fears. Mm. And those wants and fears come out of, you know, how, how are the loves of their heart ordered? And, and how have the loves of their heart played themselves out in the experiences of their life? And so when I think about wants and fears, you know, when we have relational wisdom, we know whether somebody can kind of whether they need to come in the front door of the church or if they need to come in kind of the side door. And so I think that when we, when we exercise relational wisdom, you know, for, you know, the people who need a nudge, well, they're coming in the front door, you know, but the people who need our dinner table, well, they're probably coming in the side door of the church. They need to experience, you know, relational intimacy with us at our dinner table. They probably need, you know, maybe to be connected to something like a small group or something like that, where they can, you know, have some of some more of their questions answered and kind of see, oh, well, maybe this was a a little bit different than either what I grew up with, or this thing that maybe was hard or challenging or even painful for me. So I think, you know, when we when we exercise relational wisdom in, in how we are interacting with the people that God's consistently putting in front of us, then we will know with, you know, with a, we'll have a greater sense with that, you know, that sensitivity to the spirit mm-hmm. of, okay, who is this person? What is their story? Yeah. What are their wants and fears right now? And how does the gospel speak to that? And what, you know, what are their, you know, what are the needs that are there? And so when we do those things and really just kind of think through those things, we pray through those things and, you know, ideally, we're not doing any of these things just like as one-off people. 
it's right. good for people, you know, just like, you know, when we go, <laughs> when you go look for, you know, to buy a vehicle, you know, you look at multiple different things before you land in the same way, like it's good for people to have multiple different vantage points on, you know, on us, you know, give them multiple vantage points so they can see, you know, sure. kind of what, you know, it's not just, oh, you know, they're coming kicking, you know, kicking our tires, you know, <laughs> give them a chance <laughs> to kick the tires of, you know, some people, you yeah. know, so. Well, and I hear too, you know what? It starts with us. Are we walking close to God and hearing his spirit and being authentic and loving? Uh, it is out of that that these questions should arise. And it's out of that that uh, the gospel is seen and felt and draws people. Michael, thank you. I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're in a very busy season, but uh, y'all have done a great work in this book. And I want to encourage everyone to go get your copy of The Great Dechurching. We'll have a link for that in our show notes. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, Case. It's been a pleasure like to thank you, our listeners, uh, for being with us. Please, again, like and subscribe. Share this with someone that they might be so edified. Visit us at collaborativeorlando.com to uh, get our biweekly blog, see other videos, check out our library of content and even events that are coming up. We really want to help you as you live your faith in the public square. And, of course, we're across all the social media channels. Uh, check out the episode description for helpful, helpful links and resources noted in this interview. Form for Faithfulness, our 10-minute devotional, uh, hits every single week. In the meantime, I'll be back in two weeks with a special guest. would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, the Magruder Foundation. Couldn't do it without your support. Hope to see you next time for our next nuanced conversation as we pursue faithfulness to Christ and the public square. I'm Case Thorpe, and God's blessings on you.